for January 6th, 2020. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 601. Manic Pixie Dream King. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are a long-standing tradition that has stood for generations since 1066, since William the Conqueror. Uh, there have been overthinkers attached to courts, attached to great feudal houses. Uh, the overthinkers are the, uh, the, the proud tradition, and uh, we, we, uh, we just need you to remain fooled that you need us. I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with my good friends, Pete Fenzel. Pete, pip, pip, and cheerio. (laughs) The most excellent and honorable and awesome and spectacular and totally great Matthew, David, Daniel, Joseph, William, Howard, Taft, William, Johnson, Jacob, Weather. It's very good to see you on this occasion. Uh, You missed two names. You missed Jingleheimer and Schmidt. Uh, oh, that's my name, too. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and Mark Lee. Cheerio, old boy. Your majesty. So we're, uh, we're coming around to something released a little while ago, back in November. Um, but the, uh, you know, we're, we're just getting into it now because of our holiday extravaganza. So for our 601st episode, we are talking about The Crown season Three. Um, so I, I guess where I, where I want to start with this um, is, uh, is what is the Downton Abbey moment of Queen Elizabeth II's life? No, I'm, I'm kidding. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, too, that's too hard to do. Um, I, I guess uh, The Crown Season 3 picks up uh, many years after The Crown Season 2 has uh, sort of left off. Uh, 1964 so social change and i think the most the most interesting thing about it is that a lot of the um a lot of the turmoil the sort of personal turmoil that defined the earlier seasons with claire foy as young elizabeth young queen elizabeth ii um sort of wondering how to inhabit her role as as the monarch and her husband Philip wondering about status and and insecurity and and their marriage being uh uh you know a sort of battleground um yeah you know, sort of a struggle for imperial supremacy um in in and out of the separate bedrooms uh the the third season finds them more or less settled into a, a more or less settled into a, a steady rhythm. She has become the queen, and and we can talk about the the postage stamp scene um, early on in the season, where where like uh, she is described as uh, she she uh, in her text and says old bat and. Her interlocutor says, settled monarch. She's become a settled monarch. And rather than sort of wondering about uh, her, you know, relationship to tradition and her relationship to her duty, she becomes sort of a guardian of the duty and sort of imposing duty uh, duty on others. Um, and their marriage has sort of settled into a, you know, workable partnership though, you know, perhaps not what either would order off the menu. Uh, something that is, that is at least functional, um, for both of them. Right. And so the, the turmoil kind of happens around them, um, in, uh, natural does Well, not exactly natural disasters in, uh, in, um, you know, man-made disasters, uh, you know, industrial disasters, I should say, um, historical incident, uh, and the sort of ups and downs, the vicissitudes of the lives of the, the, the people in their orbit. I hope that was a, a good enough, uh, good enough, you know, summary of, of where we are in season three and, and, you know, at a high level, how, how it differs, it differs. But Pete, what I'm wondering is, uh, 
where you know where do you see since this is not actually a sort of documentary this is this is a dramatization and mm-hmm. so it is interpreted right mm-hmm. you you choose to uh focus on certain things you choose the 10 incidents i mean this is a long period of time covered by the season from um uh 64 to 77 i think and uh it you know, you you choose ten incidents from there to to focus on. So there is a a sort of editorial. There's an authorial consciousness, um, or there is an authorship. There is an act of authorship that happens, whether the author is dead subsequent to that or not. You know, we'll leave as an exercise for another podcast. But but given that, given that this is not a found thing, it's a made thing. What what do you uh, what do you see as the sort of the paradigmatic? Uh, scene, um, what we might call the Downton Abbey moment, the the <laughs> so, yeah of this of the Crown season three. So I have changed my mind about it since I talked to you about it just before the podcast started. As I was thought about it, because there is one in the scene... last forty five minutes while I've been giving <laughs> that preamble, you changed your mind. Okay, okay. So everybody, we're talking about the Crown. It's a show on Netflix. Maybe you've watched it. Maybe you've not. It's the third season. It changed cast entirely this season. That's really exciting. We're going to talk about very specific things from it. If you haven't watched it, we'll still try to keep it interesting. But if you have watched it, this is for you, right? That's spoiler alert! Spoiler alert for British history. Yes, and the dramas of the royal family. That didn't actually happen in real life, right? (laughs) Um, Because this is a highly, I think this season in particular is highly fictionalized. Uh, it, I, I think the way I heard it described is that there were certain events that actually happened, but they're put in an order and juxtaposed against each other in a way that didn't happen. But all that notwithstanding, the 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 real standout this season, I think, in terms of changing the show, is the presence of Prince Charles, uh, who we all know, of course, as he what married Diana, uh, Princess Diana, right? Diana Spencer, who's not in this season quite yet. Uh, this this season follows Prince Charles kind of deciding that he kind of wants to go his own way and then being pulled back, which is the path that will eventually take him to marrying Princess Diana, who's not really the person that he really wanted to marry. The person he really wanted to marry is the person he's with now in real life, which is Camilla Park Bowles. And she is in this season. Okay. But the big Downton Abbey moment for this season, and I think the one that really introduces a couple of the different sorts of dialectics that are happening in this season, because there's a lot of internal conflict. This is a show that is not always telling you the truth. The characters are saying things, but they are relative to what other characters are saying, and they're relative to things that you've heard before. And you're not really – I don't think it's a, the, it's the right way to go to like believe all of it unquestioningly. But the, the Downton Abbey moment scene for me is when Prince Charles – right. And he is uh, he's a student at Cambridge at this point, and he's performing, ironically enough, as Richard II in the Shakespeare play Richard II. Right. And he and he sees it, They show him in like the makeup room and he puts on his makeup and he puts on his hat and he, his crown and he puts on his robe. So he's wearing the costume. He's he goes out on the stage and he delivers this little speech that has the line uh, for you have but mistook me all this while I live with bread like you feel want taste grief, need friends, subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king, right? And this is this is the sort of downfall of Richard II, I believe, that's being communicated here, which we should, uh, um, it's not Richard III, so it's not like terrible, terribly bad, uh, but it's not like he's, you know, Tyrion Lannistering people or like locking children up in the tower or whatnot. Um, but the idea that, and this is an idea that's really pervasive through the entire season, is this if the first season is the idea that the crown is this sort of institution, right? And when you put on the crown and become the queen, you give up a portion of your own autonomy as a person in order to participate in this institution that has this constitutionally mandated neutrality. Uh, This is what it means to be a constitutional monarch. You're not allowed to have really strong political opinions about things, but you still have a really important job. And so you do your job and you have a very strong sense of duty and uh, and the first season kind of interrogates this, and the second season interrogates, as you mentioned, the idea of, okay, well, what is it like to have a relationship or a marriage in this kind of context? Rather than just one person, what is it like for two people to have the crown, right? And in this season, it's all about what if there's a whole family, right? There's a whole bunch of different royals, and they, and they all are living in some sort of relationship with the crown. And as we find out in the play, right, that, that Prince Charles is in, there's this thing like, well, I don't get to express – uh, to you or be understood by you as somebody who has human needs and wants, 
right? Uh, this might be for it might be something simple like you know I want to I want to do the job I want to do. I want to go to school and be an actor, right? Which Prince Charles is by the end of the season. Prince Charles is in the Navy, right? Uh, uh, sailing the seven seas, he can you know put his mind at ease in the Navy. Um, or it can be something as complex as like, or like, oh, I want to drink and, and do drugs and hang out with my friends and don't do any work. Right. And, and there's this sort of w- tragic double story of Prince Margaret this season, right? Where she kind of wants to be a, have a bigger role in the monarchy early on. She feels like she wants to be taken seriously and she sort of proves that she can kind of, uh, do accomplish big jobs in the right circumstance, but she's still not entirely trusted. And so she doesn't really get to do that. And so it's both the idea that she's been neglected and left out, uh, but also she clearly has, you know, indulgence or addiction or just kind of self-control problems that give her all sorts of issues um, with regards to, like, partying and sex and drugs and rock and roll and her marriage and all this stuff. Um, or it can get, you know, more more intense where it's like, well, OK, uh, you know, Prince Philip has a wonderful episode this season, which I just just loved, where it's like. You know, I am the second the second banana to the Queen of England. I don't I'm not a king. I don't really have that kind of job. Uh, what does it mean for me to be a man, especially in middle age, uh, which, according to reports, is is uh, not something that Prince Philip. I think I read one interview with uh, Prince uh, Queen Elizabeth's biographer who said that Prince Philip would not uh, would not notice a midlife crisis if it smacked him in the face. <laughs> that he is not that kind of guy. Um, but this season, Prince Philip is played wonderfully by uh, by uh, Edmure Tully himself, uh, Brutus from Rome, uh, and he's played as something of a. I use the word exemplar, and that's why it kind of goes back to the Shakespearean idea of the king, right? Because. In the crown up to this point, we've been mostly dealing with the English or the British constitutional notion of the monarch, right? And and also the Elizabethan ideal of the queen, the idea of the king or queen as somebody who is kind of uh, connected to God, right? And in such a way separate from the political process and the people and the, and the various prime ministers come to the queen and talk to the queen, but the queen isn't really allowed to interfere with politics, And so her role is always kind of uncertain, but it's this very constitutional notion that the job of the monarch is, uh, I think, one way that I heard it described. I think Mike Duncan on the uh, the Revolutions podcast that you know Europe said that Europe went through a process where the kings were all uh, done away with or or put into a tiny box and put on a shelf. Right, the 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 king, the, the crown of England has been put on a shelf by the democratic movements of the 19th and 20th centuries, and or the 18th to an extent. Uh, and, and so the queen has a very limited role that she has to play. But the the idea of monarchy that this season is also observing is the idea of like the historical monarch as a as a tragic figure of of kind of exemplary personal appetites, uh, which if you think about the kings, right, and the stories of kings and queens being stories of kind of great pride and mighty falls and great loves and huge betrayals, right? I think at one point uh, in this season, Prince Mar- uh, Princess Margaret says that she'll have the first divorce since Henry VIII, right? And so there is a dimension of the idea of being the king or queen of England or being part of the crown that doesn't say that you're supposed to be in this little box up on the shelf or providing this very sober and self-controlled and abstinent sort of constitutional role. You're supposed to be out there like living greatly, loving greatly, doing greatly, failing horribly and dying. Right. And it's this idea of like, I am a king, but I am bereft. Right. Is this sort of dramatic notion of of uh, and this is, you know, Aristotle and the idea that that tragedy comes from falls from great heights. And so royal figures make for great dramatic characters because they have great heights to fall from. And so you can use them, though, not necessarily portraying them realistically as exemplars for moral lessons. And, you know, it's like, oh, you know, Henry, the Henry, the fifth started out as Prince Hal, and he was very irresponsible, and he was hanging out with Falstaff and drinking all the time, right? And the Hundred Years' War was happening, and he had to fight in the Battle of Agincourt. And you know what he had to do? He had to grow up. That's what he had to do, and he had to become a real king. And this is not, if you, in case you haven't noticed, this story isn't about Henry V. It's about you, son, and you need to go get a job, right? It's like, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the king has a different sort of cultural role. And so I think that one of the, the axes of this season is this idea of, the people who are in the royal family trying to figure out how to be in the royal family when they're not Queen Elizabeth 
and looking to different sorts of models for what royal people do and excellent people and these ideas of kind of excellence and, and greatness that they sort of seem adjacent to being very, very different from Queen Elizabeth's experience of being queen, which is based on ascetic self-denial and self-control and discipline. Um and and sort of uh, just also just having the sort of temperament where these sorts of things are not necessarily as hard for you to do as they might be for others. Uh, you know, she's portrayed in the show as someone who uh, doesn't really live with the urgent pressing, you know, you know, uh, demand of her personal appetites. All right. It's, it's not like that. It's not like uh, this isn't a Downton Abbey situation where it's like, oh, but I want to so badly, but I can't. It's like, you know, I would really have liked to have raced racehorses. Uh, yeah, I really would have enjoyed that. That would have been nice. And it's not going to happen. And, and I'm fine with that. They were really. Right? Yeah, they were a lot more. They were a lot lustier one generation earlier. And, uh, you know, in the, the generation following the First World War, when, you know, Lady Mary was just simmering under all those corsets <laughs> and, and and whatnot, yeah. you know, that, yeah. Elizabeth I mean, it, seems it, yeah. pretty, pretty resigned to a, a life of renunciation of the flesh, I think. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, uh, I mean, perhaps one of the ways in which the show lies to you uh, in a way that I think it's it's doing you a favor is Prince Charles coming to the conclusion that Edward the Seventh was like a manic pixie dream king, right? He was like uh, <laughs> that. It's like, oh, Edward the Seventh just tried to express himself, and it was about the music, and you guys didn't understand, right? As opposed to like Edward the Seventh was a fop, a dilettante, a Nazi, and an abrogator of his duty who put us all into this situation that none of us want to be in, right? Like that's like uh, certainly I think the previous seasons of The Crown have not been altogether kind to Edward Edward the Seventh, right? I'm remembering the right guy. Um, it's, uh, I can't remember the number, but, um, while you're looking at it up, I just had this stunning realization that yeah. Prince Charles is Kylo Ren and Edward <laughs> is freaking Darth Vader. Right. Am I right? <laughs> oh, did you, I mean, yes. did you know, I mean, did you notice that I had definitely from the, the floppy, uh, floppy curls, right. The, the sort of shaggy do, I definitely had the Prince Charles, Kylo Ren, uh, uh, association for for what it's <laughs> they, worth. Sorry, I'm not they're, sure. They're, they're diet. They're, they're Edward the eighth. Edward the eighth. I'm sorry, I didn't mean Edward the seventh was the Edwardian age. Edward the eighth was the foppish Nazi mm. sympathizer. So anyway, sorry. Continue. Continue. Yeah, that's uh. <laughs> so so yeah. So I mean, Kylo Ren and like um. I'm so surprised that in the way that uh. You know, I don't. He force heals all of the the people who die in the the coal mining disaster right that that was uh really <laughs> magical of him yeah the scene there yeah, i love i love the scene where uh he's able to magically talk to camilla parker bowls over great distances despite the two of them being entirely separate uh, <laughs> <laughs> using that dark side of the force device the telephone which is not used in star wars a lot <laughs> so i mean i like one one interesting rubric that i think we can put on on what you're saying is like a difference between you know seasons 1 and 2 and season 3 of the show uh is that like in in the first two seasons, I, I, it seems to me that this this idea of the kind of the the difference, the kind of distance or slippage between the the idea of the role and the lived experience of the role is very often um, in in a kind of an obvious way, not to say ham fisted, but a, sort of a very direct way um, given through you know portraiture, through like comparisons of of you know uh, the living person with with photographs and and paintings. And the, I think it's the end of the first season where she's like, "You are not, you are Elizabeth Regina. You're the queen. You are um, you know uh, not the not the mortal woman, only the the eternal." monarch and say cheese right which right. is how i think i the movie elizabeth ends with Kate blanchett right is that is that how this first no it's how the the, the first season i think of uh-huh. the uh um of the thing ends or maybe the second season something like that with claire foy you know d- done up in in all her regalia and looking uh you know looking quite majestic um for what it's worth if you uh, ever watch helen mirren in the queen the uh peter morgan and stephen freer's um you know film about the days after the death of diana uh and the kind of the 
PR struggles that the monarchy had with that, which is sort of dramatized as a, as a personal struggle for Elizabeth herself. Um, the first shot of that, I'm sorry, spoiler alerts for the first 30 seconds of the queen starring Helen Mirren is that, uh, it pans up this beautiful image of, of the queen that you assume is a photograph until Helen Mirren looks directly into the camera, looks, spikes the camera, like looks into the lens and, uh, it's unnerving. It's, it's, you know, it's weird because it's like this, this, um, uh, portrait come come to life, and though you get that, like so, and and so it's like the the majesty, the monarchy is something that's imposed from outside. It's a role that you have to fill. It's constitutional. It's traditional. It's you know uh, what have you. It's there. There are a variety of structures and sort of discourses. Drink, drink, um, drink plural because they said discourses uh, that like impose the role on you, and you get that scene uh, early on in the postage stamp scene where Elizabeth. Is looking at the new postage stamp uh, of of her that shows that you know that she has aged from a from a, a you know young and dewy Claire Foy into a more more deeply lined uh, Olivia Coleman, and uh, she talks about how you know life you know age happens to us all, and the only thing you can do is just to get on with it. Um, you get you get that scene, but then like there is something else. In in this scene, like rather than it being imp- in this season, rather than it being imposed, you, you can kind of see in what you're talking about with with um, Charles, even though he misapprehends a lot about you know the the role models that that he picks or the kind of the the fantasy uh, identifications that he he sort of goes with like Richard the second, huh? Like died in prison. Like that's, that's the one you're going to go with. Um, Seriously. Yeah. Uh, right. Like even though there are, you know, perhaps, and you know, he's young, whatever. Uh, th- that said, he's, it's a, it's a question of him sort of reaching out from inside the role, you know, mm-hmm. rather than it being, you know, rather than it being, <laughs> Uh, like the, the, you know, silver dome put uh, uh, over the room service dinner. It's like the dinner itself is hopping up on the plate and knocking at the, you know, knocking on its, its metal enclosure from the inside as if to say, hello, hello, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm down here. Can you lift this thing off or trying to, you know, pick a different, uh, pick a different, um, you know, sort of chafing dish, uh, chafing dish to be put in i don't know mark did you have a, a large-scale thought about the the themes or focus of of season three especially uh set against seasons one and two um i'll start with season three and i'm gonna circle back to season one and two later but um i mean i guess the whole thing let's put let's talk about the whole thing in its entirety right which is that um it's constantly hitting you over the head with this dual nature of the monarchy, right? It's grandeur, it's majesty. Like, look how awesome this is. While at the same time, look, look how crazy this is. <laughs> um, <laughs> and <laughs> and and um, I I think it it it's really interesting how it it manages to play off both of those. And and I'm I'm curious to hear from you, like, which of them um, is is stronger. In this, um, are they or are they really even attention at all? Oh, like which is stronger—the idea that the monarchy is grand, or the idea that it's crazy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, w- I would say that the the season does a really does a really interesting trick at the very end, where Helena Bonham Carter, who is. I mean, so many of the performances of the season are great, but Helen Monica Carter in particular used less than I thought she would be, uh, less extroverted and nutso than I thought she would be yes. also in her performance. Yes, I mean, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gives a speech at the end about how uh, Queen Elizabeth is the only person who has the obligation and ability to go through everything that has happened and just not flinch and not crack. And how the whole country seems to be falling apart. But as long as Queen Elizabeth holds it together, she's the spackle, right? She's like the caulk and the, and the chinks in the wall or the putty, whatever whatever construction of, uh, material she's talking about. This idea that people can persist with the notion that the UK is proceeding in, in a, and their lives continue in, a, in a, a good enough way as long as Queen Elizabeth doesn't crack. And 
the episodes one by one are of all of her family members cracking for various reasons. Everyone around her from like the prime minister to right. Uh, everyone around her is cracking and she doesn't crack. And so to say, well, is the show more about the craziness or the grandeur? And it's notable because it's the grandeur lie. The the triumph of the grandeur, if there is a triumph of the grandeur, lies in the fact that the, that Queen Elizabeth herself isn't swallowed by the craziness, even though she seems very sad at times. Right. And sort of or she has that wonderful kind of like yawning, yawning well of a whistling emptiness look in her eyes. Right. Where it's just like she has turned on the queen and she's put on. You know, I've put on the mask. You of me. I was born into this. Actually, we were all born into this. That's what royalty is. (laughs) Uh, But uh but yeah, so so. But actually, think, hold on. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't. It was supposed to be Edward the Eighth and his issue, right? Like, right, right, right. so there there is a, a sort of hanging over this, right? Like all the time, this idea that it's not the right one, or that this is like a weird tributary of the family. Like the river was the river was diverted until the very you know the very uh, nice scene you know between her and her uncle at the end where he says the crown finds its way uh onto the right head which is you know um a little sentimental but like yeah which is but that is sort of an anxiety of like kind of being born to it but also kind of not being born to this specifically being born into the tradition but not into the role right 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 and so yeah so so i I would say that the it's a proactive versus reactive thing, right? Or an active versus passive thing. And huh. that the craziness and the scandal and the human frailty and the passion that also represents a kind of failure to keep yourself together. And also the moments of tumult, right, that shake the country are the things that you spend most of your time watching. Uh, so so they set the tone. And it's hard to say that the season isn't about them. But in the end, when they sort of note that one notable absence, which is that the the monarchy has not collapsed Queen Elizabeth has not herself gone off to Cabo, right, to go have an affair with, uh, you know, I don't even know who I would say, right? Like Johnny Carson, I don't know, right? Like who's not in the season, but uh, but you know, it's uh, she hasn't done that sort of thing. How much of a triumph does that represent? And how much of the center of gravity of the show is that really? When it's only introduced at the end, I guess it they touch on it with the uh, the episode about the coal mining disaster in Wales, right, where the queen learns she has to pretend to cry when tragedies happen, when nor when her natural response to tragedy is to kind of feel very unemotional because of presumably her past relationship with tragedy and war and, and just her personality and all that stuff. She doesn't she's not the kind of person who cries very openly in public. Uh, she certainly wasn't raised with that as the goal for how she was supposed to live her life, even when she wasn't going to be queen. Uh, but she has to learn to fake crying in public so that people feel comforted when there's the horrible mind disaster. Uh, and from there on out, that's sort of if you watched that and paid attention to it, you could then go through it and say, oh, why is Queen Elizabeth being such a jerk to Prince Charles in this scene and being so mean to him? Oh, it's because she can't express sympathy. Right. It's because she's because what is really happening is she's upset about herself and she can't express that. And we've already been told this, but we were told it in a different episode. And so it doesn't it doesn't it's like in her mind, like she has this sort of through line through the whole season, which is mostly lived on the fringes. And it's not like we check in with her all the time and find out how she's doing. It's sort of like, are we paying attention to how these, you know, 12, 15 years are passing for her and what's happening? Um I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about that moment that I call a Prince Queen Elizabeth's heel turn? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> when, yeah. Sure. When she just snaps at Charles and says, like, yeah. basically, nobody gives an F about you as a person. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, and it's interesting how you phrase that. You can connect the dots between the Aberfan, the coal disaster episode, and, and that particular incident. Because um, I didn't. And, and I don't know, maybe enough time had passed between me having seen those uh, th- th- those two episodes. And I was like, whoa. That kind of came out of nowhere. Um, well, she's being like you know totally stone stone hearted in here, um, and yet when you frame it in that way, um, it makes pretty good sense. Um, it, I guess it's a couple things notable about that, and we can see what direction this takes. Is one, um, it speaks to the complexity of the character of the queen, and it's kind of one of those very few flashes of true emotion that you see coming from her. Uh, and the other one as well is just kind of like the the, the format of how these shows are presented. Um, and that, like, you know, you can ingest it all, binge, such as it were. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, over the course of a sh- short period of time, or as it was in my case, like stretch it out over a number of weeks and maybe not get the same effect of that. Pete, I think you all, you watched it all like in very quick succession, right? So maybe that's why you're able to connect those dots. Uh, I guess I watched the last second half of the season. Yeah, I think I watched it all over the last two weeks, probably. So yeah, well, not not like super duper fast, but probably faster than you. I think I was hustling to try to get ready for this episode, and a lot of it is very fresh in my mind because uh, I just finished the last two episodes, and we did three before that in a sitting, and three before that in a sitting. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, more or less, more or less. I hear what you're saying. Like how much of would this show? This show probably would not work nearly as well if it weren't on Netflix. Because it expects you or kind of rewards you for connecting what's happening between the different episodes, not the least of which because each episode kind of focuses on different characters. So it's if there's a particular character that you care about, they're not going to be in the episode, right? If you if you like the show because of Helena Bonham Carter, well, tough luck. She's in the second episode. She's in the last episode. And she shows up like three times during the entire rest of the season. Um, so it's not like it's it's repeatable from episode to episode as the other dimension of it, I guess. Matt, were you taken surprised by uh, the heel turn, as I described it? <laughs> no, I, well, the uh, yes, in that it it seemed a little more forceful than it had to be. I mean, I well, I don't know what it, what do I know about what it what it has to be? I, I I'm not lucky enough to have a child whose dreams I can crush. So <laughs> the you know I I like uh, so check your privilege, you know, but. Um, but yeah, a, a little bit. I I sort of thought I'm inclined to like in and and kind of going back, Mark, to your question about is this does this make the monarchy seem sort of ridiculous or does this make the monarchy seem you know grand and majestic? I mean, the answer is yes. But also, like I I had to remind myself like at several times throughout the washing of this that the you know that that a number of these people are like twits you know are like just 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 uh repugnant idiots um you you who, get, like who? Name, name names Matt, prince, prince philip <laughs> oh what what he's portrayed I love so he's great in real life Oh, oh, I thought you meant in the show. No. No, in the show, he's like a he's sort of beautifully tragic, like gentle, confused, masculine. No, in real life, I think I think uh, Matthew Smith described him as a cool cat, which is, I think, the kindest way to say that he's like disconcerned with things that happen in the world. Yep. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. I, I don't want to steal your, your thunder. Well, that, yeah, and, your cruelty. and like so like, yeah, exactly. I had to like, uh, you know, in a little bit. It, it It's funny. I asked I once asked. um a friend of mine who's English, I, I asked an English person uh, if they would watch the Queen's Christmas greeting, the, the Queen's Christmas message in a given year. And the revulsion uh, with which my friend <laughs> said, no, uh, you know, was so was so foreign to me um, because I am a non-British person. And so I love the British monarchy. Uh, I think they're far more popular outside the country than they are inside the country. Uh, it it like, you know, I don't know. It's it's funny, like of to me, that would be the easiest uh, sell. Uh, by the way, like uh, for, you know, in a season where, where the characters are very concerned with like, how do we sell our value to an increasingly Republican, uh, English, uh, English public, um, like the, the foreign, the international relations angle would, would be it for me. Like, it's such a, it's a huge brand for, you know, for the country and like, so valuable. You can't, you can't make it like you can't, you couldn't design that. Like all the, all the art directors in all the brand consultancies and all the King's men couldn't put, you know, the British monarchy together again. And it's, you know, I don't know. I just think you don't trade that away. Uh, I think if, if, if you can help it, because the, it really, there is definitely an aura. There's a, a, you know, valuable mystique to it. But, but anyway, I had to remind myself that, that, um, you know, that, that these people weren't, uh, uh, weren't super great, but the, the, 
I completely lost the thread of where I was going. I'm like, <laughs> you were saying they were twits. You used the word twit, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that's like, uh, well, yeah, that's what I'm. That uh, I was saying that, like, in in point of historical fact, the you you might you might take issue, you know, with these people's lives or some of the opinions they hold or or things like that. But Mark, well, you you had a, a more specific question. I'm sorry, I've I've lost it. We should move on. I've I've uh, <laughs> lost sight of the ball. Sure. No. Okay. So you started talking about like how to sell the monarchy and how to pitch it as like something grand and amazing, right? And so you mentioned the foreign uh, relations angle and the um, the branding aspect of it, right? And we saw that uh, uh, in I think the second episode, right, where Margaret goes and charms the Americans and gets the bailout money and stuff like that, which by the way is like highly fictionalized, right? It was the, yeah. those two things were not really connected at all. Um, but uh, let's then contrast that with uh, let's dig into a little bit. The, what is what is <laughs> Robert what does Robert Caro say about uh, Margaret's uh, penchant for dirty limericks. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid she doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't warrant a mention. <laughs> um, the biographer of LBJ. You mean. Yeah. By yeah, the yeah, way, yeah, yeah. you know, played by Clancy Brown, the Kurgan himself, <laughs> right? Playing L- Lyndon B. Johnson in a lovely portrayal. I thought uh, not a very realistic one. I don't know. Maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. I don't know. Sorry. Continue. Um, they did a uh, uh, side note on that. They did capture one of the most important aspects of LBJ's presidency, which was um, him like going. Yeah, yeah, going to the bathroom and leaving the door open and uh, doing and doing business in both uh, uh, senses of the word um, as like a power play and also just like, you know, just like, you know, crassness was his brand. Anyway, um, speaking of branding, right, the, 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 the failed attempt at leveraging the brand or, or burnishing the brand or building the brand um, is uh, the reality TV. Uh, but you know, <laughs> the Real Housewives of Buckingham Palace, um, episode <laughs> four, Bubbikins, right? Like they think, like you know, they'll be with the times. They'll do. They'll, they'll put them on themselves on screen. They'll use mass media, and this is, I, on to your point, Matt. This is Prince Philip's idea, and it turns out to be a colossal failure, right? They did. They just shown. They they're shown to be boring and banal. Um, now, the, the irony, of course, is that um, uh, when we get to when we get to watch. The Real Housewives of Buckingham Palace in 2019 on Netflix. It's anything but boring and banal, right? Uh, it's sexed up. It's arresting. It's dramatic and everything like that. But what gets shown on the BBC is not that, right? So, like, what is there to say about the the little reality show within the show? Um, aside from the obvious meta thing about, oh, like they're watching the Royals on TV, and we are also everyone is watching the Royals on TV in some way. Um, oh, I guess. Well, Matt, did you want to address this as you were being referred to specifically? The, the stars. They're just like us. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, they sit around and watch television just like us. They, uh, <laughs> you know, well, but they don't. I mean, I guess that's kind of that's kind of the point. Um, what were you about to say, Pete? Oh, just that. uh I'm curious whether and to what degree that's what people want them to be, right? Like, what is it that you, what do you, what, as, as Billy Corgan said, whilst riding Big Thunder Mountain, what the hell do you want from me, <laughs> right, is the question uh, that, as to why you're watching me all the time. Uh, a bit of a, bit of a podcast callback. And the idea is that, okay, if the job of the queen or the royalty is to provide to the people you know, if, they, if the royals are popular sovereigns and they, uh, you know, kind of represent the interests of the people and and as the queen says, you know, the people elect the government that on her behalf or whatever. And, and that's that's what causes things to happen. Well, if the people want a drama, then who is it? Who are the royals to say that they're not going to provide it? <laughs> right? Like, uh, which I don't think is the point of the show, but is an interesting idea in general about the relationship between paparazzi and royalty. Uh, if if the people want the royals to be people that they watch, well, all the power, authority, and money of the royals comes from the people anyway. So shouldn't they just do what they're asked? Um, and in that sense, you know, well, okay. So so to think about it more specifically, um, in uh, in the Crown, right? In episode two, Princess Margaret goes to the White House and charms Lyndon Johnson to help dig her country out of a economic crisis by. 
you know, like whining and dining him, kissing him, right? Showing him that he's like, that she's not stuffy, that she's kind of a party girl, and he, he likes that. And then in the last episode, she does a similar sort of thing. Uh, you know, she goes on a trip with a dude, and she whines and dines, and she has sex with him, and and uh, and everybody is like, oh, this is so terrible, right? Um, and it's sort of like, well, she, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not exactly the same, right? But I think the two events are analogous. And they're also analogous with her torrid romance with Tony that we see in season two. I think it's season two, right? Or maybe it's season one. I don't remember exactly when that happens. Um, where it's like, well, we all wanted to watch that. And we all want to watch the show, right? So it's sort of like, you know, darn you royals for doing things that we want to watch is is a kind of, is a faint is a sort of faint condemnation is all I'm saying um, from our perspective. But at the same time, if you want to be an effective king or queen, then there's all signs point to this probably being a bad idea. Uh, although, I mean, if you were to look at heads of state and and uh, around the world right now, certainly, you know, being theatrical and transgressive in your personal comportment and behavior is certainly not a uh, disqualifying characteristic for a world leader at this point. Uh, if anything, you know, maybe it seems to provide certain uh, advantages in both the short and long term, uh, at least to seizing and maintaining power. Um, I don't know. It's tough. It's it's. I don't think that the season gives us too many easy answers to all that stuff. But it's certainly certainly. It suggests that you, it doesn't make you good at being a royal to have a lot of unsettled personal angst that you can't cope with. Uh, it certainly makes things unpleasant for you. And if your goal is for things to be pleasant for you, you're probably up a creek without a battleship. Um, right? I mean, I guess because there's no real way out. Um, I mean, can I also yeah. just point out – just going to point out one thing that, that, that um, Margaret – uh, is is causing some problems for the family by drinking too much and having parties. And then she goes on one kind of uh, important diplomatic mission, and then she's told that she kind of can't have any job with the family ever again. Meanwhile, Tywin Lannister, right, Charles Dance himself, Lord Mountbatten, the, the architect of, I think, what, the British Navy's Burma Southeast Asia campaign during the Second World War, plots a full-on military coup of the country, right, and, and is sort of brought into the fold and given responsibility to, like, attend to matters within the royal family, which keeps him out of trouble, right? So there's, like, huge double standards happening across these different these different parallel stories. People come to different ends. So it's hard to extrapolate any one lesson uh, from this as much as to – it's more to look at the contradictions and conflicts. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, to me, the lesson I took away from that, Pete, was be a dude, <laughs> it's gonna go easier on you. They're gonna go be a dude. I, I was I was glad that uh, that that Tywin Lannister gets a plot uh, tre- a treasonous wedding in this. Movie. That was pretty nice. I mean, it, yeah, it it yeah. is like, um, yes, I I you know I don't know. Yeah, it se- it seems so out there I, I i wanted to know more about the the historical reality of the of that plot like was it as as sort of monkey balls insane as they as they <laughs> make it out to seem uh as they make it out to seem there to to you know plot a plot a takeover so, of the government can we talk about that for a second like how much does that really matter like okay. uh, in, all, in all seriousness, right? Because like, uh, are we all in agreement that like at least like a broad contours the show captures, um, uh, if not facts and like rough feelings that we have about the personalities of the royal family, right? You know, Elizabeth like keeps it together. Margaret is is crazy party girl and, and is is a hot mess. Uh, Philip is is fit. Well, we talked about Philip already. It's a little bit of an aberration, but um, like. It, it, my rough sense is that so long as it adheres roughly to those contours, it can it has a lot of liberty to mess around with stuff on the inside. Um, earlier, when we were preparing for this, I contrasted this with the one easily one of my least uh, one of the, my most reviled movies of all time, Saving Mr. Banks, um, the highly revisionist <laughs> Disney movie in which um, someone help me out with the author uh, of uh, Mary Poppins, P.L. Travers. Um, P.L. Travers, right? Is... Miranda. <laughs> also him too, right? <laughs> um, all the authors are dead. Um, in which P.L. Travers is portrayed uh, highly inaccurately and is, and is uh, 
um, uh, suggest suggested that she comes along, to, uh, comes around to the whole Disney project of Mary Poppins uh, by the end of it. This is absolutely, absolutely not true. It really betrays uh, again those broad contours um, of of her story. Um, so, the question I guess to you guys is that you know, one, do you agree with me that it adheres to the broad contours, and if so, like you know, how, why is it then that we are very forgiving? It seems like we are very forgiving of it taking so much liberty uh, on the inside, uh, even when it's getting some facts very significantly uh, not correct. I mean, ultimately, isn't that what all Americans want? Liberty from the British throne. Is that <laughs> they want to take liberties with the British throne? No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, Matt, do you want to weigh on this before I go off on another huge screed about this stuff? I feel like yeah, I've got I mean, a lot of thoughts and feelings. Well, I guess in a show where sort of tradition seems to be seems to be a character, like tradition is that I guess there is a historical record in that these things are like these things are written down and you know who the 17th Earl of Bumbridge is or whatever. But like tradition is the story that that we tell ourselves about the meaning of what happened you know uh it's not what happened it's it's our sort of collective sense of the the meaning of of what happened and so like to to a certain extent the the like the um the historians can do the like the hard work of sort of excavating historical fact but but you know no one no one cared right like uh the 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 idea that like we are telling telling this story for now for us and kind of making meaning out of a set of things a set of events uh that you know that happened in the life of this sort of historical person and and world leader seems to me you know totally appropriate and kind of in keeping with the in keeping with the 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 theme of the show the the more interesting question is kind of why right like the, the more interesting question is about function what is the function that it serves to tell um uh to tell this story about you know queen elizabeth ii right now cui bono sort of follow the money sheeple <laughs> right where this is a story about Silicon Valley supremacy over all traditional media. No, it's it's can, not. Can, can I offer a couple of potential reasons okay. as to why why I do this now? I wish you would. Um, one being kind of the next generation of the royal family really coming into its full. Right, uh, uh, Prince Harry and Prince. Um, I'm blanking on the other guy's name. Um, William, William right? the actual. Yeah, heir. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the actual heir, um, and uh, with them a whole new, <laughs> a whole new set of people around which drama can swirl. Right? See Meghan Markle and all the trouble she may or may not be causing in the royal family. So that's one thing. But the other one might be more interesting is Brexit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just like the you know three years of hand wringing about uh, Britain, about the United Kingdom and its place in history, and what shall become of it, and like, will the union even stand? Um, at least, you know, from this American uh, perspective, you know, someone who um, this American perspective, and I think of myself as someone who tries to, you know, uh, stay on top of, of the comings and goings of Brexit you know, more than the average American. Um, it, it seems like um, uh, the whole of the United Kingdom is reassessing its identity. And um, one way to do that is to examine the monarchy. And like maybe for some people, it provides a succor. A, a a a solve a bomb um in this in this in this troubled time and e- even though you know there's so much drama and turbulence um in the telling of that story at least it's like you know that unifying thing that everybody had to deal with so that's those are my those are my two theories there i would add that um the crown i would add that that there's the another interesting dimension to all this which is that at least according to something I read a while ago that I'm remembering from previous Crown podcasts, that Netflix makes the decision on what shows to make based off of data they have about what people are going to watch. And they've determined that shows about the British monarchy are popular and that Queen Elizabeth is a very popular figure. So they decided to make a show about Queen Elizabeth. And so what one of, there's a couple of interesting dimensions to that, right? One is the urge, right, to... When a group, when you know, when somebody does something based off of what an algorithm says, it, it kind of calls not into question, but it kind of calls to the floor the uh, 
the the necessity, like the 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 relative necessity of coming up with a way to understand what's going on that's narrativizable. And we talked about this in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, right? The idea that like, well, the real reason the crown exists is because of the algorithm, and it's like, well, yeah. But also, if if we want to understand what's happening, there are patterns within the algorithm that the algorithm is picking up. And you just standing behind an algorithm in order to, you know, abrogate responsibility like Prince, you know, like King Edward VIII um, for your for the moral impact of your decisions. Right. Like, I think you, you sort of have to believe to an extent that an, they don't have to. You can choose to believe to an extent that a narrative, let me rephrase, you can choose to believe, not to an extent, you can choose to believe <laughs> that narrativizations of moral concepts as they relate to observable phenomena are useful, right? Or that, that I, don't, I think that you can, you can definitely uh, debate whether they are causal, right? Whether something happens because of a particular sort of moral point or not, uh, as opposed to something being a product of chance, right? Or of other sorts of factors, right? Is this noise? Is this signal? We don't know. But it might be useful to look at the fact that when Netflix ran its numbers to determine what they wanted to make a show about, the Queen of England came around, right? Okay. So on one hand, our explanation for why Netflix might do it, imagining an idea where Netflix is engaging with Brexit, or perhaps saying when Netflix tasked people with doing this, with their own motivation of like, our data shows us this is a show that we should make. The artists, in order to make the show, have to go back and come up with an occasion or reason for why they're making it in order to write it, because the show is narrative. So that's one idea behind it. But then the other idea like, is, okay, well, what's causing the, uh, the data, right? Why is the data there? And I think that one thing that shouldn't be ignored on top of this idea of Brexit and this top idea of kind of um, the relationship with institutions and how that's been changing is the development of all of the other markets where Netflix operates and the huge number of television sets in India, right? Like uh, now, or computer screens, not even television sets, right? Like that. Nostalgic for their empress. (laughs) Certainly curious, right? Certainly curious. Uh, I don't necessarily I don't want to say that they would necessarily uh, uh, want to have her around. I have no idea. Right. But like there are places there are a lot of places all over the world where over the last 30 years, their relationship with media has utterly and totally transformed in ways that we in the United States are only peripherally aware of. Um, And Queen Elizabeth was famous before that happened. Was she desired? Right. I don't know. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's a necessary condition for this. Um, I don't know if the crown is really for all of those people that Netflix saw in their data really, really liked or thought Elizabeth was famous. Right. It might even just be something as simple as like, well, we want to shell the show in Canada. Right. We want to. Yeah, we want something for the U.S., but we want something. Where are our big markets? Is it Canada? Is it Germany? Is it the Queen Elizabeth really famous in Germany? I don't know. I mean, because my assumption is it's like the developing world, which is portrayed in the first season, at least a little bit. Right. Like, like there's now, you know, there's uh, there's um, it's Nasser. Right. Who's portrayed in the first season, the Egyptian general turned uh, turns head of state. Right. Uh, There's a whole engagement of the first season of The Crown between uh, England and her colonies, as it were, which reflects to me an interest by the people creating the show in telling a story that engages with those former colonies who now are themselves, you know, developing or developed countries. Right. They they have computers that can stream Netflix or cell phones or whatever. Right. Like. And and whereas previously, maybe they they didn't they had television sets here and there. But like, I mean, I don't know. I was at I was at a dinner uh, before before the holidays with some of my coworkers and I have a coworker, you know, from India and he was talking about his childhood. Right. And he's like, you know, and when and he's talking about when his uh, parents, when his parents applied for, for to a private school on behalf of one of his brothers and it, these the material detail of the story is not important. There's no need to divulge any more detail about who this person is. But the important fact that stuck out was like, and we didn't have a telephone, right? And the people at the table were by and large, like very confused, (laughs) you know, like what, right? Like you're sitting with us here, you know, and, and when you were growing up, you didn't have a telephone. And it was, it was, it was a, it was a degree of confusion, I think, a palpable confusion in the room that, that did not, it was too powerful to even lend itself to the question, right? Of like, like nobody would necessarily people would be like, really, they, they couldn't even say it. Right. There was sort of a silence moment. Right. And I think 
to an extent, yeah, I don't, I don't even want to chicken out like that. I want to say the crown is is doing both things. It is it is both addressing and sort of solving the anxieties in the Western world about very longstanding Western institutions, and you might say the Anglo world, the English speaking developed world. But it is also engaging with a desire, perhaps in the developed world, right? Uh, that I can conjecture is there at least to see this thing that they didn't get a chance to see, right? Um, in much the same, like Terminator Genesis. This is Terminator Genesis for the royal family, right? Like, like they didn't necessarily get to see the royals every day, all the time. Maybe they read out of the newspaper, right? But like, you know, 30, 40 years ago, when this, when the events of these things are portraying are happening, you know, they, they're not a lot of television sets. Some, not a lot, right? Ra- you know, radios maybe. Um, and so there's a real allure to it. So, so I, and what this is going around to saying to you, Mark, is like, yeah, for you and me, the pageantry here. Well, certainly the crown has a much, much lower degree of pageantry than Downton Abbey does in terms of the way the way Downton Abbey kind of exploitatively shoots silverware. Right. It's like tablecloth exploitation. Right. It's like the, everything is sort of tinking and crisp and dinging and and perfect and the livery and everything. Uh, and there's a real kind of like like Mad Men is is. Constantly, the background of the show Mad Men was always echoing with the sound of starched fabric running along silk, right? And that that was sort of in every uh, in every scene. We actually talked about this in the first season of The Crown, because in the first season of The Crown, we had the sense that um, there was a real kind of John Tapper perceived value phenomenon happening, where every door that opened or closed did so with a very deep and satisfying like thunk. Right. Like, oh, there were lots of thunks and chunks and crunks. Right. As like big, heavy things were being moved around. Um, And so there's a voyeurism is what I'm saying to being able to see all these things. But now here we are in season three and it seems like the voyeurism is kind of worn off a little bit. Right. Uh, and, and maybe, appeal, that's, that, maybe that's why I'm struggling with it. Is, uh, you're saying the appeal. Uh, either the, the appeal is worn off or, or the we we are, um, the show seems to have the show is showing us less of it than it was before, because it assumes that the appeal has worn off. Perhaps it is portraying that in real life the appeal had worn off. Perhaps it is uh, in dialogue with us and we are in dialogue with it because we are less drawn to it now than we were when it first happened. And it's also this idea of, okay, the queen isn't young and hot anymore, right? Um, Which was part of what the show was about, right? Like Queen Elizabeth is 90. At some point she was young and hot, right? Like, uh, (laughs) I mean, because it's kind of, see, it's, and I don't want to, I'm not saying that like it's important, right? I'm saying it because it's, it's spectacle, it's television, it's, it's play, it's like, uh, it's, it's part of what's happening. Um, it's the Heisenberg has a cool hat and mustache, you know, appeal of the monarchy. Um, and it's engaging with your question, Mark, about this sort of balance between the majesty and the madness, right? Uh, the uh, not the madness of King George, but the madness of, you know, the paparazzi who ch- literally chased Princess Diana to her death um, through that whole thing. Uh, it's it's very interesting. So I get caught up. I just get caught. So, Matt, bail me out of this one. Bail me out of this one. Change the topic. Change the topic. <laughs> Pete, you may have many things to say. No one wants to hear them. Oh. <laughs> Heel turn. <laughs> you burnt. Too. <laughs> you burnt. Man, Dave uh, Royal burn. Got real hot right there for a second. No, that QB two was burning. <laughs> um, well, no, that's. Uh, I, 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 uh, I, I think it's fascinating, and I, I think like the idea. Yeah, especially when you think of the idea of Netflix as sort of algorithmically generated television, right? Like, uh, it does take it out of, uh, it takes it out of strictly a discourse of sort of an artist. Uh, either like channeling intentionally or somehow reflecting the, um, you know, the, the, uh, anxieties or sort of concerns of their time. And it puts it into this realm of like, puts it into this realm of like the show as data, you know, the show is kind of like yeah. a data point to sort of a, a manifestation, not that like, as you said, and as we talked about in our old uh, show, uh, these things can't be done. Uh, they, they can't be considered in, uh, uh, necessarily in a straightforward way, because when you talk about, 
One of the interesting things about um, so-called machine learning, the application of a lot of, you know, predictive models of like regressions and linear algebra and what a math that I, you know, I'm, I'm don't really understand, but, but the idea that, uh, uh, one of the things that you give up, one of the kind of truisms of these things in computer science is that uh, the more, uh, you know, what you give up for the sophistication of the kind of the machine learning process is exact insight into why certain outcomes are are preferred, right? That the, the, you know, the, the sort of convolutional neural network or whatever can predict and, and with good training data can come to predict pretty accurately what behavior will be, but, you know, set aside what we talked about on that show in terms of like, well, uh, what do you reinforce? You know, right. There's a question. These things aren't done in isolation, but the, the, but also like, uh, it almost becomes more important in a weird way that we that we can narrativize it, that we can tell a story about it to kind of give a sense that you know life in the world and things that these things these things all have meaning. Anyway, now now you have to pull pull me out of my dive. We've we've climbed <laughs> we've climbed so high, like Prince Philip piloting a plane directly in to the moon the moon the feminine principle and the duality of sun and moon like the queen of england elizabeth regina no longer the human being only the eternal we are the overthinkers and we will be back next week subjecting the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. I hate to break it to you guys, but I don't think we'll ever be royals. It doesn't run in our blood. You know, like that, that kind of luxury just is not for us. And we crave a different kind of buzz. <laughs> well, I will be a royal if I want to. And as such, I will put pine tar halfway up my baseball bat, which is a reference that nobody under the age of 40 is going to get. <laughs> so never mind. George Brett, hey, uh, uh, George Brett will make a cameo. You just watch. It's all Pete, Pete Bo, Bo, Bo Jackson. Age Bo, knows, Bo, Bo knows majesty. Age. There it is. Bo does know majesty. <laughs>